This is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, February the 11th, 2021. It is a Thursday, and Thursday usually is a standalone show or a feedback show or a roundtable show, sometimes a call-in show. Today, we're breaking with all tradition, and we're doing another interview show. Two interview shows in a week, yep. And there's a reason. Nick Ferguson, my good friend and uh, expert council member, is here at my house. Um, and uh, we did some work together yesterday getting ready for the big freeze in the backyard. He's here on a consultation tour, uh, working with some clients and stuff like that in the middle of this freezing cold weather. And since he was here, we thought, why not sit down together and do a show? And what he's working really heavily with right now are fodder trees and soil health. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, and we're going to be like moving straight into it. We're not going to have a long intro today. I just do want to kind of remind you up front here that one of the best ways you can support this show is become a member of my members program. And if you do that, you are not only helping the show and helping me and making sure that we're here for you, you're getting access to so many discounts that if you use those discounts, okay, if you use those discounts, You get your money back, and in fact, you get more money back than you put in. It happens all the time. If, For just one example, if you use CBD products and you're not an MSB member, I'll put it this way, you hate money. I have several different options for those products alone. That if you use the discounts once or twice, you're probably ahead because it's an expensive item. And I have tons of other stuff. I have, you know, uh, gunadapters.com is, is an MSB member, uh, supporting vendor where you can get different adapters for shotguns, where you can fire you know, 38 Special or 44 Special or 22 Long Rifle out of a shotgun. That, that's just one of many things that I have. I have discounts on seeds. I have discounts on plants. I got discounts on discounts, guys. Check it out. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, sign up there. With that, let's go ahead and jump into it today. We're talking about fodder tree uh, food forestry. We're talking about soil health today with my good friend Nick Ferguson, who is here In studio, that's very rare that that happens. All right, folks, with that, I want to welcome Nick Ferguson to the Survival Podcast. How are you doing today, Nick? I'm pretty good, as always. I love being here with you. And we've got a working interview today, folks, and Nick is actually here with me in studio, or in my disaster of an office, I guess would be a better way to put it. Um, and he's here in the middle of the big freeze, man. So, uh, oh yeah. So, you, what drug you out here in the middle of the shitty weather instead of staying home at your place <laughs> where you probably need to be, like, You know, keeping things in line out there. Well, naturally, um, I had a, uh, a project kickoff about an hour west of here that started the day the big freeze started. So <laughs> we're we're going around in the in the field on the back of a jacked up, uh, glorified golf cart, uh, <laughs> freezing our rears off, talking about this project, while D sixes are going in the background and. Uh, scraping out new ponds and everything. So, uh, yeah, just a little uh, consulting tour, and uh, I dropped off a couple livestock guardian dog pups. I only have one left. So, yeah, about to head back home after we're done here. And uh, we're going to be talking about fodder trees and getting your soil ready and some of the reasoning behind, especially now, getting a, a, a lighted fire under the under the butt, so to speak, with that. 
Um, but before we do, you mentioned consulting and what have you. Now, I've got a workshop coming up March 24th through the 28th. So kind of the week prior to that, you're going to be in this kind of general vicinity, right? So mm -hmm. if people want to have you come out and consult with them on a design, how should they get in touch with you for that? So we're getting that knocked out right up front. Yeah, uh, really easy. All you do is just put consulting in the subject line. makes it really easy for me to find your email because I get a lot of them in. And send that email to nick at homegrownliberty.com. Awesome, awesome. All right, so... Let's start off with, um, we'll, we'll come at this from the fodder trees first. And uh, maybe we should start off with a very simple question, because a lot of people like fodder what? What are fodder trees? All right, so basically any, any kind of a tree that is edible by an herbivore can be a fodder tree. This is, this is really old, old techniques, old technology, um, any, you know, There's there's dozens and dozens now. There are some that are not so great, and there's some that are great. But um, basically, uh, any tree that you're going to harvest as leaves, uh, harvest the leaves to feed your livestock. That can be cattle, goat, sheep, whatever. Um, and there's essentially two methods of managing the trees. There's coppicing. And that's where you're basically growing it from a stump, and then you harvest it all the way down to the stump. Um, and then there's pollarding, and that's you let the trunk grow up. And generally, this is more like a silvopasture type system, where you'll have this tree grow up to tall enough that the animals can't get to the new, tender, juicy, delicious shoots, and you'll manage it at that height. So those are kind of the two... Two management styles and systems, if you will, and and both of those have been managed for livestock feed, or fuel wood, or even timber. Um, you know, just some of the history. Some of the first evidence goes back to like as far as 4,000 BC. This is long-term stuff. I mean, uh, the Japanese were practicing what they call daisugi. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, it's like bonsai, except on a massive scale. You know, if you're not saying Dasugi right, it doesn't matter because no one else knows either. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so no, we got the one guy, the one guy in this audience that actually speaks Japanese. I know we'll hear from him. Right. <laughs> so, so basically, um, if I remember this correctly, they weren't allowed to timber because I guess the emperor owned the trees or yeah. something. Yeah. But they could prune trees, so they learned if they let a tree grow up. And then they cut the top of it off. They'd send out shoots and they'd send these branches out laterally. And then they could let these sprouts sprout up from the branches straight up. And it'd make really nice, tall, straight timbers. And if they'd let that grow, they'd end up with this nice timber size branch that they could prune off of the tree. And they'd get 20 trees off of one tree. And they could keep doing that over and over for hundreds of years. So, I mean, people have been doing this all over the world. It's just fallen out of favor because of industrial agriculture. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching the documentary uh, from BBC, Ruth Goodman's one on yep. Wartime Farm, mm -hmm. and they referred to this as tree hay. Yeah. Right, so England, that's a thing. Like, when you're talking about Japan, so during the Edo period of Japan, which is probably the area, the time that this came up in, um, and there's a great book about that called Just Enough, and it's it's pretty fa fascinating reading. Mm -hmm. um, but they literally cataloged every effing tree 
in the country had a, a number in the royal records. Wow. Like, this tree is here, and if this tree's not here, somebody will be explaining why this tree's not here, right? <laughs> I mean, literally, that's how it was. Like, all the forest was managed that way. And, I mean, you might have a little tree, like, on your own little, you know, surf-level farm, and that was your tree, but any tree in what we would think of as the commons, which was the majority of the land, right? If it wasn't farm, mm -hmm. it was commons. Yeah, every single tree was in the royal record. And if it was not a good tree, it was gone. They got rid of it, and they left only the good trees. And they harvested a certain amount every year. You know, obviously they had to build everything with trees back then, right? So That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so a little bit more about the history, you know, in English. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a tree nerd, so maybe not everyone else has <laughs> noticed this, but um, you'll hear of a, a, you know, a copse. Well, that's a copse is a basically it's a, a timber lot that was managed with coppicing. So they call it a copse of trees. Mm. So um, you know they would they'd cut those trees down and they'd let one shoot grow every year for however many years it took to get that up to harvestable timber size for firewood or whatever, and then they would take one cutting off of that every year. So basically, you know, if it takes five years, you'd have five shoots always growing on that. And by the time, you know, one shoot's five years old, you harvest it. Mm. So it's completely regenerative, completely sustainable, and it's it's just really cool. And it also makes trees live longer. That's the yes. crazy thing. Like, you would think, like, mm -hmm. constantly cutting this tree down would make it live less. But there are, like coppiced chestnuts, coppiced hazelnuts mm -hmm. right now alive being used in some of these systems that are thousands of years old. Right. But yeah, I mean, like... Yeah, it, it pretty much just kind of resets the the genetic uh, clock back to a baby tree every time it gets cut like that. And, yeah, like you said, I mean, they've been doing this kind of system for, for hundreds and hundreds of years in Scandinavian countries. Mm. So what makes you like such a big fan of fodder trees personally? Okay, so you know, I'm I'm always with my clients, I always try to think about things from um, worst case scenario. Let's design with the worst case scenario in mind so that, you know, like your show talks about, if times get tough or even if they don't. Yep. I, I love that. That's an excellent philosophy, and that's how I tr always try to design things. Be, uh, if it will if it breaks down and doesn't work, if times get tough, It's not good enough. I need it to work if times are tough or if they're not. Yep. So if, if times are tough, I need to be able to raise food from my own land. I need to be able to feed my animals. If I can't get any feed from the feed store because, I don't know, maybe, maybe China bought all the, the corn and soy. And, maybe. And, and we kept exporting it. <laughs> maybe. 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 Yeah. You know, if that happens, I need to be able to feed my critters, and I need to be able to feed my family. So fodder trees enable you to literally become 100% independent of the feed store. So if you're feeding ruminants, any kind of herbivore that's going to you know, eat plant matter, you can feed them these fodder tree leaves. Um, white mulberry, here's, here's some numbers for people that really want some proof. And I can actually give citations for the studies and white papers that have been written on this. And if you really want to get some cool information, 
um, on rareplantstore.com, I have a, um, a section on there with the plant species profiles where you can click on that and you can look at, you know, kind of a, a bird's eye view of each of those species. And then I have links on there for white papers and articles and stuff. So if you're interested in that, check that out. Um, but white mulberry specifically can produce between 22 and 26,000 pounds per acre per year with a cutting interval of 9 to 10 weeks apart. And we're looking at 18 to 25% dry matter protein. 18 to 25%. That's incredible. That's great. And that's like a 75 to 85% dry matter digestibility. That is fan-freaking-tastic. That's as good as anything you're going to buy. It's, yeah, it's yeah. better. Yeah, yeah. It's freaking better than anything you're going to buy. It's like... It, it, it's got better numbers than when they say horse quality hay. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, way better. In fact, the the protein content is so high it's, if you're doing this right that you actually need to kind of be easy with how much you're feeding mm-hmm. because it's going to be so much protein, and you can actually end up with GI issues in your in your uh, herbivores. So mm-hmm. when we're talking about raising enough protein to feed your your cattle or your goats or, you know, just a, you know, a milk cow or whatever. Being able to do that on your own land is very hard if you're raising corn and wheat and trying to make soybean meal and all that stuff. Just grow some freaking mulberry trees, coppice them or pollard them, and you can harvest it like hay, just like you normally would with hay. Have you noticed that, like, everything we feed animals has gone to things that are impractical? Yep. For the individual to do themselves, right? Even the farmer that grows the corn or grows the soy doesn't generally process the corn or process the soy. Like, if it's, it's crazy, but you think about it, if you have a farmer and he's small enough that he still does keep some livestock and stuff like that, but he's farming a couple hundred acres of corn and soy and wheat in rotation, right? Mm-hmm. He goes to the freaking feed store to buy feed made of corn, soy, and wheat, right? right? Because it's so impractical. So if it's impractical for him to do. Yep. It's impractical for us to do. It, yeah, absolutely. You know, it. it's almost like the powers that be don't want you to be able to take care of everything yourself. It's crazy. I mean, I, I'm not wearing any tinfoil hats or anything, <laughs> but it's almost like he, they want lying. you. He's lying. It's guys. almost he's like. He's got a big ass tinfoil <laughs> hat wrapped around his head. It's so tight, his eyes are changing color. <laughs> I prefer to not be under people's thumbs, so. Good. Yeah, um, I agree. Basically, it's uh, shoot. You can even uh, take the the young white mulberry leaves in the springtime, cut them, and you can sauté them just like cooked greens, and perfectly edible. So people can eat them. Yep. Animals can eat them. Yep. And then we get byproducts like firewood, mulch, yep. right? Uh huh. Um, a lot of these things you can actually propagate very easily. And sell those for some side income. You got things like uh, live fence hedge stakes. So if uh, if you don't have the money or you just can't get the fencing materials because, I don't know, maybe shipping broke down or there's some kind of conflict between where we get freaking everything from yeah. China. Yeah. And you can't get fencing to put around your, your little chicken paddock or whatever. Well, if you have tons of willow growing that you're growing for fodder, you have tons of willow stakes. And guess what you can do? You can jam those in the ground every four inches, 
hand weave them together, and all of a sudden you've got a freaking fence. Yep. That's actually going to grow together. Yep. That no chickens are going to go through. Yeah, a lot of these trees you can do the stick method, or you can yep. also do the plant the individual tree, mm-hmm. let it grow into a whip, yep. bend the whip to the ground, weight it down, and just keep doing that, and you end up with the same... Yep, a hedge. Yeah, you end up with, a, 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 I guess, a fedge, but the fedge yeah. is for the animal instead of you. Exactly, yeah. And then mulch, I mean, you've got that in your notes, but I, what it makes me think of is like... Jeff Lawton's Green in the Desert project was great, but it was also a spectacular flop because he went in, he did it, and then no one took care of it. The Greening the Desert 2 project is the one that I think is really impressive where they have people living there, students coming in, and it's like they're in the middle of this this place in Jordan, and it's like brown everywhere, and it's like this green blob. Mm-hmm. But one of the things he was most proud of is by year three that they would not need to import any mulch. Yep. And you got to think about the fact that Probably, I would say, the most gifted designer alive today in the world of permaculture. The most important thing he wanted was mulch independence. You yep. I mean, really let that sink in, right? Yeah. That's, that's what I try, keep trying to tell all my clients is for, for resiliency going forward, you need to be thinking about this. And you need to be focusing on ways that you can shore up those needs. And one of those big ones like Jack just said, is mulch. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. And, I mean, I'll take, you know, there's a giant, massive, friggin' mountain of, of wood chip mulch in my field that we'll mm-hmm. be using this year. And I'll take every freaking ounce of it I can get. But I can't depend on it being there. Right. I, I You know, go to chip.io. I've never gotten a single wood chip from chip.io. I think it's a great idea. Neither uh, have I. But I've never gotten any. I bribe local tree trimmers with beer. Yep. That's how I get mine, yep. right? Hey, uh, you want to dump that there? Oh, it's not re- – just dump it. Yeah. And I go get two 12-packs of Coors Light. Uh-huh. Universal payment right. Right, is beer. Because, right? <laughs> you, know, you know, they say the universal payment method is, is actually vodka. Like vodka buys shit everywhere, mm-hmm. right? But um, I'm not giving a bunch of guys working with chainsaws vodka, right? But right. beer, they're only going to hurt themselves so bad with. <laughs> right. So – how, we, we grow our fodder trees. Now, how do we use the fodder? All right. So um, there's there's a couple methods. One of the more labor-intensive, manual labor-intensive, is cut and carry. Now, that can actually be scaled up to farm-scale um, harvesting where it's pretty much a single pass um, where you can actually trim everything like uh, vineyard growers do. They have uh, over-the-row... Over the Pruners that basically just trim off all the excess uh, grapevines. Like a straddle harvester, basically, yes, exactly. with a pruner. Okay. Exactly. And then that'll drop everything into the alleyway, and then you just run through it with a rake right behind the same tractor that's pulling the that's has a boom pruning everything, and you have a, a windrow of all this cut stuff. You can then harvest that, let it dry, and then bale it up. So, you know, people online say, well, this is not practical. You can't do this. How are you ever going to do this? You only have two goats. Sure, but you, this is not practical on a major scale. I'm sorry, but people are already doing this on a major yeah. scale. They're just not doing it with things like white mulberry. Yeah. And I don't understand why. Yeah, because all the equipment exists, and it's already it's, being used. And it's easy. Even if it's not being used for this. Like I mentioned a straddle harvester. It's pretty much the same tool. Yeah. But do you really think that somebody's out there individually picking the elderberries that they make elderberry extract that they sell at Walmart? Like that, the scale that that's done at, like, sure, if you're a prepper and you have some mulberry in your backyard, 
you can go pick your own elderberries or your own mulberry or whatever. Right. But at a at the if you see it on a shelf in a department store as a nutraceutical, you know that there's a massive multi-billion dollar market from it. That's one of the great points Mark Shepard made about what to grow, right? Yep. But if you're going to harvest, you know, aronia or uh, elderberry or something like that, you're going to have the basically the same equipment that exists to do this. So, yeah, it'll scale in any direction. Absolutely. So you've got cut and carry. So on a smaller scale, you'll basically just go out to your your coppice system or pollard system, and you'll cut it, and you'll carry it to where you want to feed the animals. Yep. So if you want them to eat in a certain area, then that's what you'll do. That's called cut and carry. Um, there's another way that you can do this if you have a larger flock of dairy goats or sheep or cattle or whatever. Um, basically what you do is you plant out a paddock that's a coppice system, and you keep that fenced off, and they're only allowed in there when it's time to harvest that. And they'll go in there, and they'll pick all the leaves for free, and they'll be happy to do it. I mean, that's yep. – they don't even require $15 minimum wage. Yeah, yeah. So you let them go in there. They strip it all off, and then you pull them out, and you exclude them from that area. The leaves regrow, and you give it a, a recovery time, and then you let them back in there. Essentially, that is you're managing trees the way that a rancher manages grass. Exactly. You have a certain amount you're willing to let them browse. You let them browse that much, and you move. Bingo. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so you'll do that all summer long into fall, and then you'll you'll hold them out of it so that those trees can produce enough sugars to survive the next year. And then once everything goes dormant late in winter, you kind of go back through with, if you're doing this mechanically, with a tractor and a bush hog, and you just mow it all down. Let all the, the branches that you chopped up get mulched and laid in place. That's perfectly fine. And you just keep doing that. If you always have your bush hog set to the same height, well, it's going to manage it as a stump. Mm. If you want to do it manually, well, you get your pruning shears, your loppers, or a little saw or whatever, and you go out there and prune them and, and chop that stuff up. You can chop it down as mulch in place, as chop and drop, or you can collect all those limbs and they're all going to be pretty dang straight and non-branching. Well, you collect all those, stack them up to dry, and you could use that as fuel wood, or you could use it to, you know, heat a greenhouse in the winter. You could use it to heat your house. Generally, if you're if you're cooking with wood, you don't want big logs. You want stuff about the size of a broom handle or the size of your big thumb. Which is exactly what you're going to get with this, mm -hmm. which is exactly what they did in medieval times. Absolutely. So uh, that's fodder blocks. That's direct browse. And then um, there's another way where you've got a kind of a silvopasture, and you would prune the pollard trees. So you can go out there with your flock of sheep or goats or cattle or whatever following behind you, and you get a little step stool, and you reach up with some pruners and snip some branches off, and they'll fall down. The animals will mob it. Clean it all up, and you go to the next one, and you keep doing yep. that. Or you can do the same thing with a tractor and a boom arm with a mower on it. And you can just reach up, and you can just chop the tops out of those trees. All the branches will fall down, the leaves will fall down, and boom. You fed your animals, and they're, they'll, they know it's time, and they'll just follow along. So you can do it mechanically or manually. Absolutely. Good stuff, man. So... And on that, you kind of touched on pruning and how to manage it, but I know people are probably going to want to know more, so can maybe expand on that a little bit? Sure, yeah. So um, specifically those 
pollard trees, for instance, they'll have, you know, you'll have the trunk going all the way up, and um, you'll start that out as just a little whip that you plant in the ground or a, a branch that suckered off and, and you stuck in the ground. And you start that growing, and you get it up, you know, we're talking like maybe tool handle size, a couple inches in diameter, and what you want to do is let that grow to where any livestock that you have that are going to stand up, like goats or sheep will, they'll stand up and put their, their hooves on, on the trunk to reach up as high as they can and get at those leaves. So what you want to do is set it up so that any of those branches will not be reachable by the goats or sheep or whatever you have when they're uh, re-sprouting in the springtime. So generally that's going to be around five to six foot tall. And what you'll do is you'll top that. You'll just cut the very top of it off. Make sure there's no branches down low. We want basically just a stick. And then it's going to sprout out at the very top. And you're going to pick four, maybe five branches to be kind of your scaffold limbs. And you want those to kind of go up and away from the tree and away from each other. And you're going to train those out to about, you know, kind of a 45, 40 degree angle. You don't want it straight out horizontal. You don't want it straight up vertical. It's better to have them spread out so they'll grow strong. And then you'll let those get between two, three, four foot long. And then you'll top those. You'll tip those back. And then what that's going to do is it's going to trigger that that tree to put out more shoots from that, that tip. And... If you keep doing that, tipping it at the exact same spot, what you're going to end up with is this kind of like a, is it a, a shillelagh? It's like a club. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. It looks, Shillelaghs, that's exactly, they make them from blackthorn. That's exactly yeah. what they do. Yeah. So it, it looks like a, a gnarly, weird-looking club on the end of a branch. And that club is covered in what are called meristematic cells. They're basically like the the plant stem cells that can turn into shoots or leaves or blossoms or anything. And that, you know, that gnarly looking thing is going to be just completely covered in these these bud tissues where they can just send out shoots like crazy. So, that's kind of what it'll look like. I'm trying to just paint that picture for you. And then it'll send out all those shoots, and you'll harvest them as needed without putting too much stress on the tree. You don't want to harvest all the shoots, or you'll kill the tree because it needs to make sugars to keep feeding its tissues. But um, that's that's kind of how you manage those pollards. And if you want kind of a picture of what that looks like, think about the, the crepe myrtles that just get brutalized every winter. Yeah. That you know, it's just a stick, and then there's this weird, gnarly-looking thing on the very top of it, and maybe there's a couple branches coming off. That they're pollarding those. If you see trees in a neighborhood that get up, you know, a certain height, and then they have some branches coming out, and then it's like a flat top. Well, that's because they're they're pruning those limbs and the top of that tree out so that it doesn't get up into the power lines and cause power outages. Those are pollards. Now. They're not managed in the exact same way that we're talking about, but just you know, to give you a picture, you've probably seen pollards, just didn't know it. Yeah, I mean it's standard practice northeast United States that there's entire businesses, and they know what pollards are, even if they don't call them that. Right. And they're charging people to go. To, they call it topping to top their trees mm-hmm. for them, 
and they're basically in two businesses, topping trees and selling firewood, mm-hmm. right? Because they're basically managing firewood, yep. but they're managing like two trees per lot, mm-hmm. right? All through a neighborhood, all through multiple neighborhoods. It's a very common practice. It's one of those things that like I grew up looking at it, and as soon as I heard about this, I'm like, oh, that's what they're doing, mm-hmm. right? And I knew what they were doing, but I was like, okay, now here's, here's the ancient root of it, so to speak, right? Right. So on managing the trees itself, like how do we handle that? So yeah, the so that's that's Pollard's coppice systems. Basically, it's the exact same thing. I already kind of covered this a bit, but basically, it's it's you're cutting it all the way back down to the stump. You okay. let that stump, you know, those shoots get up about four inches or so, and sometimes it'll just look like a crazy mess. But if you clean it up more and are managing it more towards the timber side of things, which you absolutely can do then you'll end up with just a few suckers coming out of that instead of just a, a porcupine-looking stump yeah. of little shoots. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's actually been some studies done on how many BTUs you can get out of an acre raising um, oak for firewood versus using hybrid poplar for firewood. Okay. Now, oak has higher BTU sure. than hybrid poplar. Hybrid poplar burns pretty clean, and it burns fast, so you have to feed the fire more. But if you're talking about uh, you know, growing as many BTUs on an acre as you can, I think, I think the figure, and I'm probably wrong on this, but I have the, the article linked on, on my website. Uh, I think it was like around three times the number of BTUs per acre compared to oak. Yeah, and we're not saying hybrid poplar has more BTUs per ton of wood. Right. We're saying you can grow more of it faster, and therefore you make up the difference. And the other side of it is oak's not a really popular palatable thing. Yeah. So you're if you judged it only in the quality of firewood, okay, it loses. But if you like, you get mm-hmm. good. You can even have great firewood or good firewood and free feed for your animals. Bingo. Right, and Stacking a massive shit ton of mulch, right, and, and what have you. Stacking right? functions. Yeah, so we might kind of mention a couple of kind of trees there. Are there special trees for, for, for pot fodder, you know? Yes, okay, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are special trees. There are some, uh, for instance, uh, white mulberry has been grown and developed for generations and generations to be highly digestible, high-protein, from the silk trade. Mm-hmm. So hundreds, thousands of years ago? Thousands of years. They were growing white mulberry for silk production. So that is one of the premium fodder trees because it's just so digestible. It's relatively low in tannins. Um, let me see my little notes here. Easy to propagate, highly palatable. The They all have drawbacks, though. So if you're letting these get up and start producing berries then one of the drawbacks is purple bird poop. <laughs> there are white mulberries. Uh, that doesn't mean they have white berries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so That's a different thing. Yeah, so yes. So, there are white mulberries, yes. and there's white mulberry trees, Correct. but they mean different things when we say that. Right, right, right. <laughs> so yes, some, some fodder trees are excellent. Some are decent. Some are bad. Some of them are actually deadly. So... I am not, by no means am I saying, just go out and cut any old limb and feed it to your animals. 
I don't want people coming back and saying, my horse died because I have fed it some black locust, and black mm-hmm. locust is a good fodder tree. It is, but not for horses. Not for horses. So, so yes, there are some good ones. So I'm going to give you my top three that are pretty much safe for anything to eat. And then what I, what I suggest is that you maybe buy some of these top three that I suggest. Get started with that so you have something growing. You're progressing. And then you start learning more about this this uh, technique and this management system and get diving a little bit deeper into what trees have been traditionally used and kind of the proportions that you want to be shooting for. You know, we don't have time to get into all of that. But the, the top three in my book are white mulberry, hybrid poplar, and hybrid willow. And hybrid poplar, again, high protein. The highest growth rate, I mean, it grows insane. Once it gets established, you can get 15-foot shoots in a year. 15 freaking foot. That's a lot. Um, good firewood, foolproof propagation. You, you cut a little stick off that's 12, 18 inches, stick it in the ground, and it'll grow. Like, literally, it's that easy. Uh, it has higher tannins, though. So for sheep and cattle and horses, it's less palatable less digestible, but for animals like goats especially that actually thrive on higher tannins, it can actually have a medicinal effect with uh, preventing intestinal worms and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so hybrid poplar, hybrid willow, again, excellent protein, fast growth. Not as fast as hybrid poplar, but faster than white mulberry. It's, again, foolproof propagation it's also a little bit higher in tannins than white mulberry, but a little bit less than hybrid poplar. And it does actually have a little bit of medicinal effects too. So those are my top three that I suggest. Those are actually the three I have on my fodder package on Rare Plant Store. Um, so I think it's best to buy some to start out with. I don't care if you get them from me. I'm going to sell out this year. So <laughs> get them from me or don't. But... At least get some, get those growing so you can know this is poplar. And then if you, you might have some poplar already growing on your property. And now all of a sudden, oh, I can, I can use this native poplar as well as the hybrid poplar. And you can kind of compare and contrast. Do my animals like one or the other better? Gotcha. And I think we should point out we did talk about kind of scaling this up. But the person that's like running a rabbitry with like three does and a buck, Mm-hmm. With a few trees of each. Oh yeah, can, and that's then that's not a lot of work to manually no. cut and bring it. And if you were smart, you would probably plant your trees close to where your rabbits be, right. right? And then uh-huh. if you let if you picked a certain height, then they could actually like shade your rabbits, uh-huh. right? And then uh-huh. your extra trimmings would just go like below your rabbit hutch where the rabbit shit goes, and then you would have like instantaneous. Compost, Complete yeah. compost system. There might even be worms in there. I don't know. And uh-huh. then chickens might come through and process that. And then that might go to the garden. And then that would be easy. And that would not be a lot of work. And it would be something that, you know, you could train a 10-year-old to do very easily to take Absolutely. care of rabbits, right? And now you have, if you were to then plant, like, some grass and, and, and clover around your garden and put all that in the same spot, then between... The fodder trees and a bag mower, all of a sudden you have a completely self-sustaining rabbit tree and mm-hmm. a fairly fairly self-sustaining you know, poultry system at the same time. And that's, that's what we're really talking about for people. If you want to do this at a farm scale, absolutely, God bless you, please. And we need literally thousands of people starting to do stuff like this. We've we, we got to change what we're doing. But 
until they do, most people in this audience are controlling somewhere between, because I've surveyed this, a quarter to 10 acres. A quarter of an acre to 10 acres is the vast majority. And of that, the majority is a quarter acre to two. Yep. And this can be done at that scale easily. 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 You can easily, at, at that kind of scale, get your rabbits completely off of the feed store. So if you kind of do an audit, if you look at, okay, how many rabbits do I need to, to raise enough to feed my family and my dogs or to it just at least supplement a, a good amount of what I'm spending on feed? And you replace that with feed that you raised completely on your property with almost no effort. It takes, it takes about 30 seconds to a minute every day to harvest enough of that mulberry and, and poplar fodder to feed your rabbits for a whole day and put enough hay, start drying enough of that for hay for the winter so you're getting two days' worth of feed mm. for 30 seconds to a minute every day? Yeah, so harvest twice what you need and, and put up half, like right. ants do. We talk a lot about the ant and the grasshopper here, but the ant doesn't like do this earth-shattering amount of work in a day. It's a little bit. It does, I, the ants go out, they bring enough to home to eat, to feed the ants that can't go out, and to put a little bit away, about a third, a third, and a third. And by doing that, by winter, the ant is prepared and the grasshopper is dead. Right. Right. So what can we feed this stuff to? We've mentioned rabbits, right? Yep. But so rabbits, that's that's my number one. That's one of the easiest things to get into. Um, you can raise them completely on nothing but some hay and some fodder leaves, period. You don't ever have to buy rabbit pellets. I still use rabbit pellets because if I'm leaving for a week or two, I don't want them so dependent on and used to those fodder leaves that I can't have someone who has no clue what they're doing yeah. coming over and and, and taking care of my rabbits by feeding them some cherry leaves, you know? <laughs> so, so, <laughs> or your pond holly. Or, right, right. Or, yeah. So, so you know, I've got that, that those pellets, and they get a little bit of pellets every day. So if I need to leave, I can just have someone fill this thing up. Is it full? Yes, it's okay. Is it not full? Okay, put some in. Yeah. So that's that's what I do. I still buy some pellets, but basically we're talking about the capability to get yourself completely free of the feed store. So rabbit, so rabbits, goats, sheep, uh, cattle, anything in the equine family, horses, donkeys, mules, etc. Pigs will eat the leaves very readily. It's sometimes a little bit better to just kind of mix the leaves up in a little bit of other food or or table scraps or whatever, you know, mix it in with their slop. But they love the leaves. Um, all those animals will eat the leaves unprocessed, whole, straight off of the branch or, you know, just a pile of leaves. If you're wanting to feed chickens and ducks, because everyone always asks me, well, can I feed those leaves to my chickens and my ducks and my, my quail? And I say, yes, you can. However, they're not herbivores. Yeah. That's that's not a major part of their diet. Yes, they'll eat it, but you're not going to get get them eating exclusively fodder leaves. Um, and generally, you have to kind of shred the leaves up a bit to get the pieces smaller so that they can actually eat them. So yes, chickens and ducks, quail will eat the leaves. They'll like them, but they're not going to make it a massive part of their diet. So... 
we've talked a lot about fodder trees, and I know we're going to talk about two main things today to achieve food security. And you and I are in total effing agreement (laughs) that there has never been a more critical period in modern history to do this. Like, there's been worse shit than's coming in the past, but no living human being has seen it. Um, We have, we kind of mocked it a little bit, but we have a real problem right now in this country with our stupidity. And for all the good things Trump did, he did some stupid things. And it's the stupid things that Biden is continuing with, like, hey, we got to help the farmers by selling all of our stuff to China or China, depending on who you are, right? <laughs> so we have had the short, the, one of the biggest shortfalls in history on so- soy, corn, and wheat. Yep. And we are at shortage of already of corn and soy and I, I don't know about you, but I kind of pay attention to the way weather works, and right now it's really cold, and so we're going to have probably a late plant this year, and there is no soy to be harvested, and there is no corn to be harvested between now and late summer, and yep. we're already in a shortage. There's some months in there, right? So we have a real problem, and people are like, well, I don't eat corn, soy, and wheat. Yeah, but the animals that most people eat, eat what? Corn, soy, and wheat. Like, I don't think we should be doing that, but I also am a realist, and we are. So we've talked about feeding our own animals. What do you think the second thing is that people need to do to achieve food security? Because I think we both agree, like, now, yesterday was the time, but if you didn't do it, <laughs> and if you have been doing it, now's the time to take it up. Right. right. This is to get beyond the, oh, in the summer we have peppers and tomatoes. This, uh-huh. is, this is a different level. Yeah. I, I, to be quite honest, I'm... I'm a little nervous looking at the rest of this year. I'm, I'm trying not to be fearful. I'm trying to be um, conscious. I'm trying to think about how I can make sure that I'm setting myself and my family up for success. And, you know, one of those things is, again, if times get tougher, even if they don't, I would like for my garden to be producing what I need. And a lot of, a lot of people don't understand or haven't haven't gone as deep into this side of things as as probably I or you have Jack um yes 100% growing veggies in your garden is way better than getting that stuff from the grocery store 100% please don't think I'm I'm saying that growing your garden is is not a good thing however if if you haven't actually done a soil test and know what your soil is deficient in, then what you're going to be facing if you all of a sudden are trying to raise a good portion of your food off of your garden instead of shipped from Idaho, shipped from California, shipped from Indiana, shipped from all over, you know, this big smorgasbord of locations where the soils are a little bit different, where you're going to be getting a little bit of the mineral profile of that and this and this and this, all different mineral profiles where you're, for the most part, getting a reasonable assortment of those minerals. If you're eating in your backyard and your soil is completely deficient in selenium and your whole region is, and and you've bought hook, line, and sinker like so many people have, the organic gardening ethos of you just need to make more compost, right? Then you're gonna you're gonna be under the false impression that all of that 
all those plants need is in your soil because you've got nice, rich, black soil. And if you do, that's fantastic. But if your soil is completely deficient in cobalt, molybdenum, zinc, selenium, like and uh, silicon, like my soils are, I'm setting up a new garden I just tested, and I'm quite deficient in all five of those. If your garden is, then you're going to have disease issues and insect issues, and you're going to have nutrition issues. So if you're not growing healthy soil that has all the right minerals and nutrients in it to feed your plants, your plants aren't going to be healthy, and it's garbage in, garbage out. If you're Yeah, and I just want to kind of point something out here. Odds are somewhere at some stratified layer in most places, most of the minerals are there somewhere. Mm-hmm. you got to get them out. And I, I've, I was talking about this earlier. Like my, my British friend, Neil, I would always mock him when he would say vitamins. And he'd mm-hmm. say, right, well, you say minerals. And I would say, well, maybe we should say minerals because <laughs> literally what plants do is mine minerals from those deep layers. But if it's not there, period. Right. Or if it's not in the range of where they can reach. Because I don't know, let's say that like your whole property is a limestone slab, like yeah. mine, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, so if it's not there, you can't make it. Right. Minerals, right, are from the nuclear fusion reaction of stars, right? <laughs> like you don't not have selenium and then like this is a this is a an element. It, we call it a mineral, but really selenium is an element. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't break down. You don't just get new selenium. Right. There is ways that that can happen, but in general, it's, it happened billions of years ago in star chambers, right? And then the matter ended up here, and it gets mined from rocks and things like that, by plants and acid reactions and fungi and stuff like that. That all can be done, but it takes time that you don't have. And just throwing compost there will improve soil structure. It will improve growth. Absolutely. It will make everything better. But if there is no selenium, and the thing you're composting has no selenium, there shall be no selenium. And there may be, in you might have selenium in a millennium, Right. <laughs> but I don't think we're going to live a millennium. And if you ain't eating selenium, you definitely ain't going to live a millennium, right? Right, right. <laughs> like this has to be created by by reactions. All right. So yeah. So you might be deficient in in some elements in your soil, but if you don't get it tested, you don't know what you're lacking. And honestly, the quickest, easiest, best way to get that rectified is get a soil test. I wouldn't send it off to your local ag department thing because I've heard of too many people that say, yeah, I work in one of those places, and when we get like 50 people all sending in a a soil test, we'll just kind of copy and paste one result, and, (laughs) and you're not actually getting your soil tested. You're getting soil near you tested, right? You're getting kind of a general guesstimate for your region, so which you could have gotten without doing the test, right? right. That all that all that data exists under USGI, right? So, right. Yeah. So what I really suggest is go to Logan Labs, get the their they tell you how to take your test, you know, how to take your soil samples. Don't cheat and and only sample the top couple inches. You really need to sample, you know, the whole six inches. And, Unless you don't have six inches. Right. If you don't have six <laughs> inches, well, you just denote that because yeah. that's going to actually skew the results. Okay. So um, follow the instructions on that. You actually need to know exactly what you've got. Um, 
and then send that off, and then you'll get a result. Now, I've got a, a great book that's kind of a, a pithy read. Uh, I like the guy who wrote it. Very intelligent person, but with with lots of intelligent people. Some, oh, I know him. Yeah, some. <laughs> yeah, Steve. Steve's He's not on the show. He's a dick, but he's smart. Yeah, right. Well, it. I, I'm not a stupid person. Yeah. It took me rereading a couple of these pages to understand and get to the real meat of the the real kernel question of how do I calculate this? So I st- I struggled a little bit with this getting all the information uh, for what those target numbers need to be out of this book. So if you want to get really geeky and learn the 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 base information on how to analyze and assess your own soils, uh, The Intelligent Gardener by Steve Solomon is a good book for that. It actually has a ton of really good information and uh, gives a very compelling case for what we've been talking about. Available on Amazon through tspaz.com. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, however... I, I know there's lots of people out there who say, I don't have time or the mental bandwidth to learn a new uh, vocation, almost. That's almost what this is. If if you want that level of, of soil analysis done, I'm actually going to be selling a few spots this year. I'm probably only going to accept about 100. Okay. I am working on a tool so uh, Erica Reinheimer made a, a web tool that g- basically you punch in your numbers and then it'll spit out what your soil prescription needs to be. However, there's a problem with it. <laughs> I love the tool. Fantastic. Except when you give me a recipe and the only place I can get half of the ingredients is halfway across the freaking country... That recipe is not very useful to me. I was able to get one of the components in a 50-pound sack. I need like 80 pounds, and it's a $20 amendment. It 20 bucks for a 50-pound sack, except when you have to pay 60 bucks, 40 bucks, whatever it was, to have it shipped halfway across the country. It's all of a sudden a little bit more cost prohibitive. So, what I decided was, okay, you don't you don't have a a tool that really works for everybody. I can't, I can't change this in any way, and I can't get the ingredients you're suggesting, so your recipe doesn't work. So I decided I'd make my own. Oh, cool. So I've put together a spreadsheet that's going to allow me to allow anyone who doesn't understand this stuff to just take the numbers out of the spreadsheet and then play with the recipe a little bit. It'll automatically tell you if you're too high or too low, and you just start with the, the small ingredients and you work your way up to the biggest things like calcium and magnesium. And it'll automatically, you know, you just say, okay, uh, I can get this this lime, this garden lime or whatever from my feed store. And I'll actually, ha- I have a little, basically a cheat sheet. You, t- you print this out. This is common nitrogen sources. This is common phosphorus, potassium, etc. sources. You take it to your feed store and you say, which ones of these can you get? And and then you can actually fill out how big is the bag? You know, how many pounds are in it? 
How expensive is it? You know, what's the price on that thing? And you put all that information into this tool that it's going to cost me, I think, around five grand to get it built for my website. But you'll basically say, enter in all your information for what you have, and then you can actually start filling out your recipe. It's very simple and easy to do. If you can follow a recipe on a cookbook, you can do this. You don't have to understand all this soil science and cation exchange capacity. And it'll build out, and then boom, it'll actually spit out a recipe that you can actually print out and take to your feed store that's going to tell you how much it's gonna, it should cost you, how many bags of each thing you need, and then you just mix that up according to the instructions that I've got on the website, and boom. Now you can actually remineralize your soil with all this same information that's in this book, but you don't have to understand the underlying science behind it to actually do it. And I think that is so stinking powerful that you don't have to understand how this stuff works to be able to do it. And we're talking to get that level of analysis from a soil agronomist, that's at least 500 bucks a pop, maybe thousands of dollars each time you want to test your soil. And you'd be able to do that for next to nothing. So for this year, since I don't think I'm going to be able to get that tool built because it's going to take a while to get the web developers to build the tool, I'm not going to have it in time for this spring gardening season. However, what I'm willing to do is for a select number of people, I'm going to actually personally use my spreadsheet for you and fill that all out. So if you're interested in that, kind of being in that pilot program, uh, email me, Nick at Homegrown Liberty with soil test in the subject line, and we'll figure something out. Let's talk a little bit about why this is so important. Like, I mean, it, it just seems like it's all this extra work. I've been growing a garden my whole life, and uh -huh. some of the things this is this is not only about human nutrition from the vegetables. That's part of it, but it's not the only thing. Yes. Okay. So, um, Rutgers University. In New Jersey, actually did a a study not too long ago, and they took 200 squash plants. All the seed was from the same batch. Soil was from the same source. Uh, pots are the same size. Irrigation water. Everything is the same. And they split them up, 100 plants and 100 plants, except one set of 100 plants had the soil amended with silicon. And almost all the plants with low silicon soils had massive powdery mildew problems. The ones with silicon amended in the soil had almost zero powdery mildew issues. Now, when, when you're talking about gardening and growing, one of the most frustrating things is insects just obliterating your crop or a disease coming in and obliterating it all. So if you're actually counting on this to produce food and you need it to produce food, you need to make sure your plants are healthy so that they can resist those diseases and insects. So if you take the whole nutrition thing and just throw it out the window and you're just looking at, you know, production, production, am I going to get better food that tastes better, that is going to produce each one of those plants is going to produce more If they're getting everything they need and there's no limiting factors in that soil, then what you're going to have is more productive garden and healthier plants. You're not going to have as many problems with them. It's just going to make your life easier. 
So what you need to think about with this, the soil column, you know, the soil that your plants are growing in is not just a, a structure, you know, a, a scaffold for them to not fall over. They're actually getting all of their nutrition from that soil. And if, if you think about it like a, a barrel that's, you know, like one of those old wooden whiskey barrels, right? It's got slats. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, plants need all these different things. They need calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, blah, 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 blah. All these elements. Rondo. They yeah. have Rondo. They crave it. <laughs> <laughs> so they need all these things, right? And if that barrel is full of all the nutrients, the water, the light, everything that they need, they're going to produce at 100% of their capacity, right? So what if you take one of those slats, let's let's label that slat calcium, and we slide that slat down to a you know around 25% of the bucket volume, the barrel volume. Are those plants going to produce at 100%? No, because they're lacking the calcium they need. Same with any of these other elements. That that's called a limiting factor. So if you're missing one of those things, then those plants are not going to produce and perform the way they could. So what you want to think about is, how can I make these plants healthy, strong, and productive? And the the foundation for all of that is 100% uh, the soil nutrition, making sure they have all the minerals that they need. So... For every person that talks about this, there's somebody on YouTube going, just use compost. What do you say to those people? Yeah, so um, I don't know when you, you posted this, uh, but you, you sent me an email or text or something saying you quoted me. I don't remember saying that. Working with nature is great, but you have to give nature something to work with. Yeah. What, right. Was that at one of these workshops? It was when you and I were spreading seed and we were talking about another permaculturist who seems to be um, um, resistant to inputs from outside, even though he constantly uses them but acts like he doesn't. And uh, we were we were planting basically ryegrass in, mm-hmm. in a, a completely dilapidated ecosystem on my property, uh, which then exploded into growth and made soil and roots, and now stuff rose in that field where it didn't grow before. And we were talking about the whole working with nature thing, and people can probably figure out who this is with that. But I won't say it. Um, and uh, that's when you kind of quip that, that you know, yeah, it's great, but you got to give nature something to work with. We have right. to start with something. Right. Okay. So again, we're back to those minerals. If if they're deficient. And nature doesn't have what it needs to do its job because, I mean, this is this this planet is not a a regenerating one. It's not a 100% regenerating system. It is breaking down. Second law of thermodynamics: everything is breaking down. So all of this, you know, all these minerals are leaching out of the soil. Every time it rains, stuff leaches out of the soil, and a lot of these minerals will leach out of the soil. And you can actually see this. I think it was Dr. William Albrecht. I can't remember who exactly it was out of University of Missouri. Um, but he did some research on this. Uh, who's the guy? Oh, I can't remember his name right now. Basically, there was a uh, back in, it was World War II, I believe. There was a bunch of conscription going on, right? Yeah. And there was fitness tests that you had to pass or you were disqualified from service. And what they saw was back then people were pretty much eating a diet that 
was entirely, almost entirely, within a 30-mile radius of where they lived. They ate local. Mm -hmm. So if your soil was deficient in something locally, you were deficient in something. And in Missouri in particular, there was a, a line pretty much through the middle of Missouri where if you were in the top top quarter of this section of Missouri, the the rate of except, not fit to serve. Right? right. The rate of not fit to serve in the in the bottom half was way higher than in the top half. And one of the only correlating factors for that was diet. You know, they had more rotten teeth in their head. They, you know, they w didn't have as strong of bones. They didn't have the, the musculature, except everyone pretty much lived the same way in Missouri. They ate the same kinds of things. One of the only things was the amount of rainfall on those soils. And when you tested the soils, the soils in the top half were a lot richer, had a lot more of all the elements that were missing in the bottom half. And we and they actually uh, extrapolated the, all that data out to the rest of the U.S., and they saw very similar trends all over the U.S. The more of a desert environment it was, the higher the fertility in the soils, the more of a well-balanced mineralogical profile there was. But these other soils that were mined for for decades and decades and decades, without those elements going back into the soil, being recycled back in, they just didn't have it. So, um, so you know, you need to be thinking about will will my compost amendments actually have the components that my soil needs? If you're taking it all from your regional area, which pretty much all of us are, because we're not going out of state to truck in. You know, biomass. Biomass. Yeah. We're we're harvesting it from our land or our neighbor's land or our neighborhood's land, right? And everything is going to be fairly similar in its mineralogical profile. So, I mean, this is this is common knowledge. Selenium deficiencies that they have mineral balances for for cattle and everything. That if you're in a selenium deficient area, you have to feed your cattle a selenium fortified. Mineral blend. That's common knowledge. Well, it's the same kind of thing with other minerals. That we don't we don't know everything about soils. There's there's lots of researchers who say you know we know so much about it, but really when it, when we get down to it, we do not know jack diddly <laughs> about the bacteria and the fungi and what minerals are really important and critical. So. In my mind, the best thing to do is just make sure we have as well-rounded of a mineral balance in our soils as we can, and then the things that we know for sure that we have data on, that we know we need a certain amount of zinc, we know we need a certain amount of molybdenum and cobalt and so on and so forth, it's, it's incumbent upon us to actually acquire those minerals from wherever they are and restore our soils to what they should be to bring health to our plants. Yeah, and I think we can do a lot with livestock to remineralize soils, especially yes. on like a broad scale. Absolutely. By what we feed them, by feeding them mineral supplements, et cetera, processing mm -hmm. through the ruminants. A lot of times we have deficiency in, in, in minerals on our property. The mineral's there, but it's not bioavailable. A lot of it can be solved with composting, but we, don't, we can't do all of it, and we don't know what we don't know until we test. I guess the other way is I look at compost like living a healthy lifestyle. Yes. Right? So if you have a person that, that from the day they're born 
until they're an old person and they get kicked into the dirt, they always live a healthy lifestyle, they're probably going to be in great shape for their whole life. Absolutely. If that person is engaged in self-destructive behavior till they're, let's say, 45, and then say, yeah, I probably shouldn't do this anymore, and starts living a healthy lifestyle, that's better, and mm -hmm. it's good, and they should. But if they've done some sort of damage to their body at that point, mm -hmm. then corrective action must be taken to that issue, and just living healthy may not be enough. Right. There is almost no land in our country today that people have access to and control where they can grow things that has not been abused. Absolutely. It's almost all been abused. Unless it's like virgin forest that you just cleared, which makes you a horrible individual, or it's like some native prairie that you're not even allowed to till. Unless it's something like that, it's been abused. It's, yep. a, it's a freaking alcoholic that lived on Cheetos and ramen noodles till it was 50, right? Okay, at that point, that body is deficient, And just doing a healthy lifestyle is not enough. We need to figure it out. Or compare it to a cancer patient, right? Cancer patients have been eating junk all their life. Okay, we stop eating junk. That's a good start. Stop shocking the body with sugar and feeding the tumor. Great start. But we may need some chemo, mm -hmm. right? As much as I don't like it, we there's cancers that, like, if you want to live, yep, your hair's going to fall out. You're going to have to do this thing, but we can fix it. And I think a lot of times the way we need to think about remineralizing soils is kind of like that, like, If that mineral's not here, then we got to go get it. We got to bring it here, and we got to get nature that that place to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I'm not saying that this is something that you're going to do every single stinking year. No, a lot of these things you're going to do it once, and your grandchildren can be benefiting from that. Your grandchildren might not ever have to do anything with that. It's it's I'm putting six hundred dollars worth of amendments into my garden in year one. Year two, I'm putting two hundred dollars worth. And then year three, I've got $50 worth. And year four, I've got $0 worth because the only amendments that are going into my soil at this point is just some compost where I'm recycling minerals back to my garden. So this is not a an expensive way to garden for the rest of your life. This is a get it fixed so that you can garden super cheap and s super easy for for generations to come what about taking the broad spectrum approach right so especially if we're talking about the garden site yep like if we're talking about broad acre we really need to kind of dial this in and do large-scale amendments but what about the person that's growing a relatively small garden and says okay so go out get some green sand get some rock minerals things like that we mm -hmm. know it's like a good broad spectrum mineral it's kind of like when a person's sick and we don't know we give them a broad spectrum antibiotic mm -hmm. how do you feel about that i, I think that's fine however I think probably the the more the better bang for your buck is going to come when you actually know you get a, a soil test done for yeah. your broad acre pasture, for instance, yeah. and you say, okay, I know we're really deficient in this and this and this. Yeah. These are some some elements that I only need a tiny bit of to bring the whole health of the system up in a massive way. Well, you get those elements and you dilute them down. And you spray or you scatter them very lightly across the whole area, and you you restore that little bit. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great way to do it. Another way you could do it is, let's say you go whole hog on this fodder system, and you've got a block of fodder trees or a couple blocks of fodder trees that you're going to let your, your sheep herd or your goat herd in to harvest once a month. Yeah. Well... 
remineralize the soil in there. Sure. Get that fixed so that they're going in there and they're kind of getting this bolus of good, healthy mineral balance. And then they're going out and their manure is getting spread across the whole, the whole acreage as, as they go. And then, then you can just kind of slowly, incrementally keep doing that until you have the whole system much better in balance. It doesn't have to be a, a big, big dollop of, of these minerals in one go. Yeah, I agree. And I think that can be a smaller scale thing, yep. too. So if we're doing a rabbit tree, yep. chicken run, and a garden, and then we have our small component mm -hmm. of fodder trees and a little a little area of grass and clover that we're managing for our rabbits, mm -hmm. right, and we remineralize the shit out of that, then we literally take the shit from the yep. critters and we re re start to remineralize everybody, everything else. And I think applying minerals directly is great, but I don't think you'll ever get the bang for your buck that you do when you start to remineralize plants, you put the plant through an animal, you let the Absolutely. animal ruminate it, however that animal does it, because like a chicken's not really a ruminant, but we're still getting that same, yep. you know, held at a at the body temperature of a chicken in a moist environment for 48 hours and then being put out in a little plop. Yep. Like the, the availability now has been jacked up. Mm -hmm. And if we do that and we're like, if we're doing a chicken run system, regardless of whether Paul Wheaton likes it or not, and we're composting in that system and that chicken waste and that chicken's being fed this material at the same time. Or, I mean, even like I get shit because I do hydroponics and some of my hydroponic systems use synthetic fertilizer. Well, molecules are molecules, mm -hmm. right? Selenium is selenium. I'm not exactly thrilled with how they get it, but in the end, selenium is selenium. And when you're doing a hydro system and you're feeding that broad spectrum of minerals to your plants, those plants have those minerals because there's there's no system that's probably available for, let's say, lettuce mm -hmm. to absorb a mineral where that mineral is easier for that plant to absorb than growing in a hydro system, right? Yep. So growing that, feeding that to your birds. There's like lots of ways to do Absolutely. this, but I, I'm in, 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 in league with you that testing it and a, specifically addressing the acute deficiencies. Exactly. Like that is... That's your base, and then all of this is the healthy lifestyle, right? right, that we go from there with. Right, yeah. I mean, if you've got a health problem, and it's directly related to a deficiency, and we know those exist, yeah. then you don't want to just say, well, I'm just going to eat healthier. No. Find out what the exact problem is, address that first, and then start eating healthier. Yeah, and I, I think there's a – I mean, you you can see this in so many trials as well. Like you mentioned the one – I think you said Cornell or Rutgers or whoever yep. um, with the silicon. Yep. Um, this every time this is done, the results are the same but different. Man, like what the problem is is different, but the fact that one group has a problem and the other group doesn't. Yep, it's always that way. It's it's over and over and over again. And I think that a lot of times, like you see it in 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 a uh, in an agricultural system, and you don't even know that's what you're looking at. But you see this place, like you see this corn growing, and then like there's like miles of corn. And then there's this one block of corn where the corn just looks better or looks worse. And for some reason, that particular plot is high or low in a particular nutrient that mm -hmm. the rest either does or does not have access to. And it's and people are like, I don't really understand. you know. And unless it's obvious, like it's a depression and it's getting more water. Mm -hmm. Unless it's something like that, it's most likely a nutritional deficiency. And if you look at the parallels with humanity and how we are affected by diseases today, Like, none of this is surprising you or I, that people no. are, you know, basically succumbing to a cold. 
They can say whatever they want about COVID. I don't really want to go out and lick doorknobs or something and, and test the theory. But in the end, people that have deficiencies are the ones that are ending up knocked on their ass by this. And you can say whatever, but it's a lot like a plan, isn't it? Because they'll say, well, look at this guy, man. He was an athlete, and he was all built and everything. It doesn't mean that he wasn't deficient in selenium. It doesn't mean that he wasn't deficient in D3, for, right. for God's sakes. It doesn't mean he wasn't deficient in zinc. And all three of those yep. play into COVID. And gee, selenium, right? Yeah. <laughs> and selenium, selenium and zinc are two of Huge. those major nutrients that are lacking in tons of soils across the U.S., And then D3 is not really a, a mineral or a vitamin. D3 is really a hormone we make ourselves, right. which we need to function properly to make, even if we do get enough sun, right. sun exposure. And if you're deficient in zinc and selenium, you're not functioning properly. And so we have the same deficiency in humans causing disease that we have in plants causing disease. And then people stand back and go, hmm. I don't understand. And it's... it's, it's, it's Definitely not connected no, at all. No, that's conspiracy theory. <laughs> I told you he had foil wrapped around his head, guys. You know, I mean, that's crazy talk. Why Why would you be deficient in something just because the food you're eating is deficient in the thing that you're deficient in? That doesn't make any sense at all. No, that's you not science. You mean we don't have fusion reactors in our body that can make minerals? Listen, Jack, you just need to trust the science. <laughs> Don't be a science denier. I would love to trust the science. If the science was trustworthy, <laughs> I would trust it. Uh, this has been great, Nick. I'm, I'm glad you were here for this. Uh, do you want to remind folks of how they can get in touch with you, how they can learn more about what you're doing, your plant packages, all that stuff? Right. If you need to get in direct contact with me, honestly, the best way is to send me an email. I've got a lot of irons in the fire. I've got a lot of stuff going on this this spring, this winter, spring season. It's always the busiest. I've got two major earthworks projects going on. I've got designs that still need to get finished. I've got consults out the wazoo. So if you need to get in touch with me, send me an email so I don't drop the ball on it. And the best way to do that is if you're interested in something like consulting or plants or anything like that, just put that very simple word in the subject line and send that to nick at homegrownliberty.com. And if you're interested in some of the articles I've done and some of the podcast episodes I did for one year, I think I did 52-ish episodes, um, those are all on homegrownliberty.com. And then if you're interested in fodder trees, or I've got fruit trees and, and fruit vines and all kinds of stuff at rareplantstore.com. All right, I'll make sure all of that is in the show notes, and I know you probably want to get on the road pretty soon, headed back home for the big freeze, which is on its way to Louisiana, of all places. So uh, thanks for being with us today, Nick. Thanks for having me. All right, I always enjoy having Nick on the show. That was a great interview. Um, I do have the two books that he was uh, referencing during that interview in the show notes. Um, one, again, is called The Intelligent Gardener, Growing Nutrient-Dense Food by Steve Solomon. And I did have Steve on the show years ago. I'll, I'll put a link to that show if I can find it as well for you in the show notes. And the other one is JDAM Organic Gardening. Ultra-powerful pest and disease control solutions, making all natural pesticides the way to ultra-low-cost agriculture. It's a long-ass title. Uh, you don't have to remember it because it will be available for you in the show notes. Um, I cannot pronounce that author's name. His last name is Cho. And I'll, I'll leave the first name. I don't like butchering people's names. Um, also want to remind you that one of the ways you can help support this show is do your online shopping. I made a little joke there when Nick was messaging stuff, you know, available at tspaz.com. Uh, but, yeah, tspaz.com is... Uh, 
a really great website because it's basically just a page on the survivalpodcast.com and that tspaz.com is easy to remember takes you there. You can find all of the things that I've ever reviewed on Amazon available, but no matter what you buy, if you simply start there, you help support the show and the work that we do. Um, if you want to know more, again, just go to tspaz.com. You also will find my item of the day reviews and everything I've reviewed, I've bought it, I've used it, and it's passed the Spearco test. And it's something that I would, if, if it's, you know, if it's disposable uh, or consumable where I'm going to use it up, uh, I, I do buy it again. If it is something that, you know, is a durable, good, long-term thing, if I needed another one like it, I would buy it again. If I wouldn't spend my money on it, I do not recommend it to my audience. That's a commitment that I've made and I've kept year after year after year. Today's item of the day, I've brought it around a lot of times in the last five years. It's a great little product. It's not a super high-end product, but it's one of those things that does so much for so little, you really should have it in your life. And it happened to go on sale again. It is the Winchester 51-piece gunsmith screwdriver set. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a little, you know, little box, and it's got a little hand driver in it, and it's got a bunch of different bits. Um, you know, your Phillips, your straights, it's got Torx bits, it's got Robertson bits, tri-wing bits, etc., clutch bits. It doesn't have everything, but it probably has the one you need when you're like, oh, that's not a Phillips, that's a Torx. Damn it. We've all been there. Um, I definitely keep one of these in my range box, so if I'm out at the range and I need to work on a, on a gun, I will probably be able to get it done with the few other items I keep and this. But to me, even though it's marketed as a gunsmith set, right, it is... It's a screwdriver set. So I have one in the glove box of my truck. Before I sold my boat, I kept one in the glove box of the boat. I think it's still there. The guy that got the boat probably has it now. Um, I keep one in, in our other vehicle. I keep one in my shop. Because it's inexpensive and it just works. And for the price, it can't be beat. This is not like in my, my dedicated um, gunsmith box for like when I'm, you know, pull stuff out you know, bench mount, working on things. I actually have a set uh, of screwdrivers by Grace USA, which I think is like top-end, highest quality stuff you can get. It's not that. But it's also not anywhere, you know, you can't buy one Grace screwdriver for what you can buy this whole set for. And so for what it is, I just think it's an incredible deal. And it's also a great kind of like gift item, etc. Like no one's not going to want this uh, if they, you know, take care of stuff. So check it out today. Again, it's the Winchester 51-piece gunsmith screwdriver set. I want to remind you, you would have already known that today. Uh, this item's not going to sell out, but sometimes stuff does. If you were on the Telegram channel, uh, if you were on a MeWe uh, with us, if you were on Float with us, etc., you know, connect with us. And I want to let you guys know, again, I want to remind you about a search engine that I just found called PreSearch. It's at PreSearch.org. But if you go to the uh, show notes today and you use the link, uh, I will get a reward once you earn, uh, I think it's 100 uh, pre-tokens. And uh, you will, too, once you get there, if you use my referral link. So it would be worth doing. It'll be uh, in the show notes today. You'll see it. It says presearch.org. Get paid when you search with full privacy. So this is a blockchain search engine. You use it like you would use Google, except it doesn't spy on you and collect your information. And for every search, up to so many a day, you get a little bit of cryptocurrency for free. And, again, if you use my link, hey, we both get a little extra. That's always nice. So... Uh, check that out. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. I have never heard this song before, um, but I love it. It's by a guy named John McCuthian, and I think I'm saying his last name right, but it's called Not In My Name. And it's about the wars that we rage 
and the justifications for them across the globe. And how this is done in the name of the American people, but he's specifically saying, not in my name. I am opposed to this. There was a time in my life, guys, where I saw that kind of language, and I would think, you know, peacenik, hippie, commie, pinko, whatever. And then I served in the military. And I think that if, if you want to know the most anti-war individuals, you'll find their prior service military. Because they've seen war, in the words of Dwight Eisenhower, in all of its futility and all of its stupidity. And they realized in time that I was being used as a tool. And it's interesting to me that whenever you talk about like not blowing shit up, which seems like a pretty universally good idea, the people start lecturing you on what men did for you and, and the wars they fought for you and how they fought for your freedom. The people that run the mouth the most about that never served a day in the military in their lives. They're not the guy that came home and he's listening to everybody tell him how great a job he did, even though they were never there, never walked an inch next to him. And he knows he spent a lot of his time guarding poppy fields. Right? They're never those people. War is a stupid, stupid thing. There are times when it is unavoidable. I am, am not a pacifist. I am peaceful. I am not a pacifist. As a peaceful man, I am capable of great violence. But if violence is necessary, then it's necessary. It's it's not thousands of miles away, so we can fight them there, so we don't fight them here. You know what? I know that's not going to stop. I know that the people who run the world are not going to stop waging war to further their agendas. I know that. But I think the first step in reducing it is having enough people courageous enough to say, not in my name. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. See the plane in the distance. See the flame in the sky See the young ones running for cover The old ones wondering why They tell us that the world is a dangerous place We live in a terrible time But in Hiroshima, New York, or in Baghdad It's the innocent who die for the crime Not in my name Not in my name Not in my name, not in my name. Witnesses watch through the window, their hearts locked in horror and pain. That the man lying strapped to a gurney, as the poison is pumped through his veins. And I'm wondering who are the prisoners, who holds the lock and the key, who has the power When will we finally be free? Not in my name 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 So hard to find 
watched all your holy wars, your jihads, your crusades. I have been used as inspiration, I've been used as an excuse for the murder and the misery you made. I thought I made it clear in the Bible, in the Torah, and in the Koran. What is it in my teaching about loving your enemies that you people don't understand? Not in mine. 